The message you're listening to was recorded by Campus Outreach for the 2018 New Year's Conference. More information about New Year's Conference can be found at newyearsconference.com. My name is Eric Lonergan. I've been on staff for 13 years now, really long time, and this is... Anne. Uh, my name is Anne Makala, and I'm on staff as an area director in Campus Outreach Minneapolis. So I've been on staff eight, seven or eight years around that. So we, we partner together at, in Minneapolis at the downtown campus. Well, when I say downtown campus, I'm referring to the church at Bethlehem Church, but we oversee University of Minnesota and St. Thomas College campuses. So we've been working alongside each other, well, directly alongside each other now for just about a year and a half, but within our ministry for as long as she's been on staff. So... What, what we want to talk about today is something that has been kind of a conversation that, that got started on our staff team back in August. So we had training that someone came up and did some training with us on gender, on race. Mainly, mainly it started out as gender. He later followed up and did some things about race. And it generated a conversation on our team. And generated a conversation between Ann and I, and we kind of are going to invite you into that conversation. So there's a little bit of a, a smattering of thoughts, and there is some cohesion to it, but we, this is a, an evolving conversation that we're having together, and we're just inviting you to sit in on that with us, and uh, just encourage you, especially a lot of this is going to be geared toward the men in the room, and so as you hear things... I want you to think about your own experience as a man and, and as a woman, obviously, and, and just try to take in what you're hearing and, and try to filter that and think how, about how it applies to your life. Because there's some things that we're going to talk about that can be sort of hot topic, uh, politically charged um, type of topics that, that could make you potentially want to tune out. Um, I think when these kinds of discussions happen, whenever you talk about sort of the isms, racism, sexism, classism, there's ageism. a tendency, ageism, that's a very frequently used one. Um, there's, a, there's a tendency for us to, to sort of tune out and, and think, oh, this doesn't apply to me anymore. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, I think we're all kind of exhausted from the shouting matches that we hear on television, uh, the way the media portrays so many different things. And the danger in that is that something like a label like sexism, racism, classism, you start to think that it has no place in your life, and you start to distance yourself from that, and therefore don't apply something to your life where there might be a major blind spot. And, and, and this is, I'm invite you all into some of the blind spots that I've had. That's part of this. Uh, what, what this discussion is like, and Anne was fortunate enough to join me in this conversation in front of you all and help me along in my journey with this. Um, and so what the main thing, when, when I talk about those labels, the one that's going to come up today is sexism, and I'm going to just briefly describe, D.A. Horton kind of already brought this up in the first, uh, the first rally that he had, and he essentially, he, there was a, uh, it was a, kind of a side comment he made where he was talking about how the reason things like sexism, racism, classism rise up is because 
people feel a sense of superiority over someone else, right? That's a pretty simple definition. There's more complex definitions, psychological definitions and all that. But for the sake of this discussion, what I, when I refer to sexism, all I'm talking about is a man feeling superior because of his gender toward a woman. Clear enough? That makes sense? Good. Just making sure everybody's with me. I'm getting a lot of blank stares, so it's helpful feedback when I see this. Um, so, uh, where am I at here? Yeah, so we're going to try to nuance this conversation a little bit, and hopefully this, this just might illuminate some of the blind spots you might have in your own life. Yeah, and we just have a couple disclaimers. So um, you might be in this room. There's all kinds of different people that come to these conferences, which is so exciting. We're really glad. Um, every time I meet someone and hear their story and why they're here, it's always exciting to hear, oh, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're not a Christian in here. I'm glad that you're a Christian in here and looking to grow. And so we just want you to know that this talk is aimed at Christians. And so I'm not saying that because if you're not a Christian, we want you to leave. We're really glad that you're here, and we want you to listen and observe and we'd love to hear your feedback and the things that you've seen when you hear these things how do they land on you how have you seen this play out in the church if you've been in the church but we just want you to know that when we're talking we're aiming this talk at Christians and some blind spots that we think have crept into the church and so if you are here and you're not a Christian and you hear sort of these this is what we see or this is what we're talking about we're talking about the church um, and so we want you to know that and that doesn't mean that you your voice doesn't matter but we just want you to know up front that's kind of who we're aiming our talk at is, is Christians in the church. Um, and the dis second disclaimer is just that this is a huge topic. And even Eric and I prepping this and talking through it ourselves, I mean, we've spent hours talking through these things. And so there might be questions that you have or things that come up. You might wonder, like, why didn't they talk about this? Or what would the implications of this point be? Or why? what would this look like in real life? And we just want you to know this is just starting the discussion and there's lots more that we could say. And so we'd love to, we're going to have Q&A at the end. We'd love to hear your questions. And we hope this is a launching pad to start conversations um, among men and women about these things. But we just want you to know, we know that we're not going to be able to cover everything. So save your questions for the end and, and keep talking about these things. And then the other thing, just so you know, a lot of, some of the material that has influenced some of this is from a book by Amy Bird called Why Can't We Be Friends? And then the subtitle, Avoidance is Not Purity. I'd highly recommend the book. I think it's really helpful. We, uh, we're working our way through this book, and that's influenced some of what we're going to share from the front. We're going to look, we're going to just look briefly. We're not going to do a ton of diving in to a lot of different texts because the main issue that we're unpacking is just about treating each other equally. And so, uh, we're not going to dive into a ton of different scripture and unpack it and, and nuance it, but we're going to look at Genesis 1, 27 through 28. I'm just going to read this real quick as sort of the foundation for where we're going, what our aim is. And I'm my husband and I are giving a talk on gender after this. We'll talk a lot more about this kind of stuff. In the main, yeah, in the main hall. In the main hall. So Genesis 1, 27 to 28 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So I, I share that passage just because it's the clear cultural mandate that's given to both men and women, 
not just one, to, get, to have dominion over the whole earth, but men and women, and God giving this to both genders from the very beginning when God created us male and female. Um, it's, it's, clear, it's a clear call for both men and women to exercise dominion over the earth. And then throughout the New Testament, men, are, men and women are called to, as brothers and sisters in Christ and are called to love each other as such. That's just a clear, I, think, I don't think we have to do a lot of apologetics for why men and women are equal in this room, but just to be clear, that, that's how God created us, equal. And I know there's a lot of nuances to this, and we're not going to be able to nuance everything. There's going to be different theological questions that might come up, but save those for the Q&A. But I just want to make that clear from the outset. So our aim for the next 20 minutes here is that we believe God created men and women equal, but that inequality has crept into the Christian culture under the guise of, of purity and leadership, male leadership in particular. And this has inhibited male and female friendship and led to avoidance. But as, as D.A. Horton mentioned uh, in his seminar, or sorry, his rally yesterday, when, when we see things like sexism, racism, classism, when we see these things present within our culture, we need to be okay with calling it out in each other, out of love, in the right kind of context, but we need to be okay to draw these things out with each other. And so um, what we're going to do now is just set the context a little bit more broadly, just so you know where I'm coming from, because I'm older than nearly every single person in this room, save one, <laughs> uh, maybe two. There's some gray. I see some gray <laughs> elsewhere as well. Um, but uh, it'll help you get to know my experience. I don't know, like, the way anti-bullying has been raised up in our culture. Like, y'all might hear my story and be like, what? That's crazy. But this is just how I grew up. And uh, it might be a lot different. You know, you may have had a very safe high school. And I'm glad for you. Um, and then Anne's going to share a little bit of her story, and then we're going to share some ways that we can learn about how this influenced our beliefs and values. So quickly, when uh, I'm going to start at age 15. So when I was 15, my father died of a massive heart attack. I was at the, my mom wasn't at home when, when this happened, and so I went to the hospital and was in the waiting room, awaiting for my mother to come in and hear the news about her husband, my father's death. An, an unwitting neighbor came along to me, and he, he was trying to do his best. He didn't know what to say in that context, but he said, Hey, look, um, I, your, your mom's about to come in here, and when she does, you need to be strong. You need to be strong, okay? So I took that as I got to shut down emotionally and, and try to be uh, put together. And that's what it means to be masculine. Is, is to be put together, is to not show any emotion. Interestingly, there was a priest who overheard this, and uh, he pulled me aside and he said, you know, that's not true. You don't need to be strong when your mom comes in. I was 15 at the time. So I, I didn't know exactly what to think or believe. Obviously, there's a lot going on in that moment that's a traumatic experience. But I think because of my environmental factors and a lot of other factors, I took the route of, of being strong and suppressing what I felt. And that got lumped in, in a lot of ways, to what I thought masculinity meant, is for me to, to sort of have it all together 
and, and so instead of deal, actually emoting at times and recognizing even what's going on, it all went through my head. I became very cerebral, and, and that was the way I compensated in life. Um, and so there's another term psychologists use that's called hypermasculinity. Okay, hypermasculinity is essentially the stereotypes of men that you could think of exaggerated. So it's the exaggeration of stereotypical male behavior such as physical strength, aggression, and sexuality. And in my high school, these things were elevated. I mean, it, 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 was, as, it was as quintessential as some of the most ridiculous high school movies you see out there that sort of you know, categorize all the different groups, the jocks, the nerds. My high school was that to the 10th degree. We had, we had a, a Mr., what was he called, Mr. Park, where dudes would take their shirts off, literally get greased up and flex at a rally in front of 2,000 people. That's how big my high school was. And people would vote on who had the biggest muscles. There was a contest called Miss Legs, where, where the women's, uh, legs were taken, a shot of their legs were taken from the waist down, and you would vote on who had the best legs. And so these stereotypes, I, li- I lived out, I, I, this is all I knew. This is like what, what I was immersed in in my high school. And even, even then, I, was, I wasn't a Christian then, but I was like, wow, this stuff's kind of messed up at times. And I didn't even have a whole lot of spiritual maturity or barometer, but had enough to say, I don't know if I agree with all of this. Um, and it wasn't just because I couldn't stand up in front of everyone and flex. Although I admit, there is some insecurity in that. Um, lots of insecurity over that. So uh, the other thing about hypermasculinity is it, what it do, tends to do is it devalues feminine traits, right? And, th- and th- honestly, this is an issue that's not just true in the church. It's true in our culture. So at the time, another popular movie, I still like the movie, in general, overall, but this, this sort of just gives you a good illustration of what I'm talking about. There's a movie called The Sandlot. This is kind of after some of your time, but some of you probably have heard of it and like this movie. There's a, there's a point in the movie where the record sort of stops, you know, like the, and, and like it zooms in. That was a really bad record sound, but you know, you, you make the, the right. Eric's actually teaching the New Year's Eve party song. That's a little sample of what's to come. So the, the movie kind of stops, it zooms in, and uh, this insult is thrown out. And maybe you, some of you know where I'm going with this. You play ball like a girl, right? And so a lot of times we think that that stuff's innocent, or, well, that's just, that's just, that, that's still funny. But that kind of stuff just went in, in my head, and, and I didn't think twice about that kind of thing. And, but that's, that is sort of what I'm getting after when I talk about hyper-masculinity. Um, so, so even though I became a Christian and, and my life started to change, Peter Scazzaro, he says this in the Emotionally Healthy Church. He says, you may have Jesus in your heart, but you still got grandma in your bones. A lot of you think that you like something magical happens the moment that, and this is exactly what D.A. Horton was talking about. There are so many things that are deeply embedded in who you are from your past Literally from zero to two. I could, I could talk, talk a lot about this. This is more of an area that I'm studying. I find it really fascinating. That have shaped and molded who you are. That, that shape and mold who you are t- to this very moment right now. That take time. And you, hearing a talk, it doesn't just heal you of those things. And so there are ways that I inserted that into the Christian culture. 
even. And um, there are different ways that this, this fleshed itself out in, in my relationship with Anne. Um, a lot of it was, there was a sense, and she's going to talk a little bit about this, but I came across as dismissive toward women, avoidant, cold. And we're going to get into some of those details, but maybe I'll, I'll hand it over to yeah, you yeah, and you, can, yeah. you can talk a little bit. And for those of you that came in late, just... Um, to clarify, we are not married. We work together. So we're not... Um, Hence the different last names. Yeah. We're just really progressive, actually. Um, no, no. Um, so we're, um, we're not married, and we work together in campus outreach in a role called area director. Um, just thought that back. Um, so yeah, I'm just going to talk a little bit about my experience and kind of what shaped me um, into coming into Christian, the Christian world and becoming a Christian. I grew up in a, in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor. Um, and I actually felt like I was, um, I kind of grew up in an environment where I was very much pushed to share my ideas. I'm a very vocal person, um, and have a lot of ideas all the time. Um, if any of you are into the Enneagram, I'm a type eight, um, which is the same as Donald Trump and Saddam Hussein. Um, just to give you a little context of what I'm like. No, but, um, um, no, but I do, I have a lot of ideas and I'm a very verbal person and that was very encouraged as a child. So we would, I would have debates with my dad at the dinner table. He would, I mean, a lot of times say like, I want you to be whoever you want to be. I want to encourage you to thrive in your personality. And I just felt a lot of freedom growing up. I didn't really feel a lot of restrictions. I didn't feel that, um, I was different. I knew I was, I mean, my dad was a Christian. My parents were Christians. And so I knew that I was different in a lot of ways than my brothers, but the way we were treated was very much as equals. And I was, I was pushed to kind of be myself, share your ideas, debate, give your thoughts, tell people what you think. Um, and I think that what felt kind of surprising is as I grew older, um, and got into Christian ministry, I felt like the way that I was treated in my home felt really different from the ways that I was treated as a woman um, in the church, and not from everyone, but I felt like there were, um, if I'm honest, ways that I didn't feel like I got the same treatment in Christian ministry as I did um, as a young girl in my home. Um, and at first it felt subtle, like little comments and things that I would hear, um, jokes that were made, um, opportunities that I was or wasn't given. Um, but I think the more that I, like I said, I've been on staff with, with Campus RH, been in the church um, I've been on staff at campus church for a while and been in the church for a while, and I felt like the more that I was observing things, um, it started to feel like, okay, um, I feel like there are subtle and not-so-subtle ways where I'm treated as inferior, where I'm avoided, and not really given the same treatment as men. Um, so we, we want to talk about, that's a, that's a little bit about my story, but we want to talk about um, two ways um, that we see subtly and not so subtly, um, that inequality play out. So, um, and you can feel free to interject at any point with any of this, but um, the two ways, and, and Eric mentioned it in the beginning, but the two ways that we see this play out is male leadership, which is a good thing, would often come at the cost of silencing women or seeing women as a threat. So male leadership, which is a, a really good thing, often in the church comes at the cost of silencing women or viewing them as a threat. Um, so like I said, I've been on staff for eight years, and in that time, I've not all the time, but often felt like my words were viewed with suspicion and with less weight than men. And that might even be with men 
that are younger than me and have less experience than me, but the fact that I'm a woman makes my words um, maybe not hold as much weight or be viewed with a little bit more suspicion than, than a man. Um, I gave a talk once. This was probably three or four years ago. I gave a talk at a, a project. Um, summer project is something that a lot of campus RHs do. And I gave a talk, and um, a fellow staff member came up to me afterwards, and he said, we were kind of, um, there was a group of us, and we were kind of debriefing how the talk went. And he said, and honestly, I feel like, and he didn't say it apologetically, um, he just kind of stated it as fact, but he said, and honestly, I feel like probably about 80% of the guys in the room tuned you out because they were hearing from a woman. And um, hearing that was pretty shocking, um, and, and I felt like I was getting a little bit of a glimpse. He wasn't saying, again, he wasn't saying it apologetically. He wasn't saying it like, this is such a tragedy. He was saying it like, this is kind of facts. Like, I think that because you're a woman, probably about 80% of the guys tuned out um, tuned out what you said. Um, another example of kind of feeling like um, the silencing or, or being seen as a threat, um, just this year I was talking to a male peer, we're both in leadership together, um, very much equals in our job description and, and title, and um, we were having kind of a heated conversation. I was um, disagreeing with him about something, and he looked me in the eye and he said, you know, and it's kind of hard for me as a man to not see through the emotion of what you're saying to what's really going on. Um, which, I mean, again, kind of took me aback. It's like, oh, interesting. Um, but again, it, it wasn't said in a, in a, like, I'm sorry that this is true, or, hey, this is a tragedy, but I feel this way. It was stated as fact. Hey, I think that you're a woman, and, and it's easy for me as a man to see through the emotion of what you're saying um, to what's really going on. Um, which, I, again, I think gives a little bit of a glimpse of sort of the silencing or the um, threat um, that, that I've seen. Um, and if I'm honest, and we've talked through this, so we're, we're good. He Don't knows be like, honest now. <laughs> um, um, working with Eric, I felt, I felt a lot of those things. You know, we came in and um, we had both been working in kind of different contexts in Campus RH and came into a role where we were supposed to function as peers and be leading um, the like our the area that we're over together, and it felt kind of rocky. Like I felt like the even though our job description would very much describe us as peers and to be working together, like Eric said, it felt like there were ways where he was cold towards me and dismissive of my ideas, and it felt like I really had to have an airtight argument for my thoughts in order for him to take them seriously. Um, and there was even an example of, you know, we'd only been working together probably a, maybe a month or two. And I came to him with some ideas about something, something that I really felt like, I felt like I saw a problem and I had a clear um, sort of plan of how I thought that problem could be solved. And um, it, it was, it felt awkward and Eric was a little bit dismissive and, and it was a whole story that I don't really have time to get into, but I felt like, man, I... I thought we were supposed to function as peers, but it feels like there's a, um, uh, it feels like he's viewing me a little bit as a threat, and it feels like there's some silencing. In, in order for him to feel like he's leading, I'm silenced a little bit. Um, Do you mind if I just... Yeah, it? yeah, please. So just, because I think you, you, it's hard to get into all the details, but there was a decision that was made on a leadership level 
And Anne had come to the table with basically a lot of the decisions that I was planning on making. I was kind of thinking through, but Anne had, we hadn't had a direct dialogue over that because we were, I was in St. Cloud at the time. It's, it's a longer story, but we, there's some distance between us. But instead of, and there are just all sorts of ways where I really wronged Anne. I, I did not affirm all of what she brought to the table and come to her in a collaborative way saying, yeah, I think we're really on the same page. I think your ideas are great. But sort of when it, I, I, I would say I overstepped and said, this is what we're doing without really collaborating at all with her, which was... It was just, it was really ugly. And uh, there's there's a lot of that kind of stuff that I think has gone on between us, in, initially especially, and things have gotten smoothed out as we've had more and more conversation. But it was just a clear way in which I was not regarding her voice as equal to mine. And and there was a way in which that was getting snuffed out. And I think, and I, I'm just trying to contextualize in a moment because I'm like, not all of you in here are in leadership in, in a ministry sort of setting and so you might be wondering, well, how does this apply to sort of like my peer-to-peer relationships? But I can't. We can't uh, make all of bring this all the way down to the ground level. But I only would say, if you're a woman in here and you're hearing some of this, you're like, that sounds familiar. And it might be a slightly different context. Talk about that. Talk about it with people, with the aim of love, knowing that if if you're feeling like this from a brother that you want to love him, it's going to be a loving thing to address these kinds of issues. And it might not be a one-to-one correlation because we're working together and there's a leadership context going on, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of you women in here are getting a sense of like, yeah, that, that does sound familiar. Yeah, that- yeah, and I think what I would say to the men, if we're riffing, I think what I would say to the men is um, your, I, I think that God delights in leadership. I think that God delights in taking the initiative. Nirmal and I will talk about that in our gender talk in a little bit. But I, I just want you to know that for a woman to come alongside of you and to lead with you isn't a threat to your leadership. Um, that's the way that God designed the world to be. And so I think that if there's something in your heart that feels threatened by that, um, that could be something to wrestle through with God because I, I don't think that that's the way that he wants you to feel um, is what I would add to that. So um, back to the... Male leadership can often, which is a good thing, can often come at the cost of silencing women and seeing them as a threat. I think there's a couple ways that that hurts women. And there's, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious. Like, obviously that would feel hurtful to feel like who you are is a threat to male leadership. But the specific ways that I think it, it, it really hurts women is it keeps, keeps them in a role. If, if men are saying, we are in leadership and your voice is a threat to me, <clears throat> what it does is it keeps women in a role where they can only receive from men and they're not viewed as having anything to offer. So if I am a woman and my leadership or my thoughts or my opinions are a threat to male leadership, then I have to silence myself in order for male leadership to thrive. But I think a proper way to look at it is to say male leadership is lacking if there isn't a female voice present as well. And so I think that if I become a threat, if who I am becomes a threat, um, the only way for male leadership to thrive is to silence me. Um, And I think the... Um, I think the second way that it hurts women is that it cuts you out from being able to live the cultural mandate that God has given us both together to subdue the earth and to have dominion over it. So if I'm a threat to your leadership, 
I'm actually, and, and you're silencing me and pushing me to the side, you're actually keeping me from what God has called me to do, which is to subdue the, the earth with you and have dominion over the earth. Yeah, yeah. So um, the first um, male leadership good thing come at the cost of silencing women, seeing them as a threat. The second point um, that we, that's something that we've seen a lot is that purity, which is a really good thing, comes in the form of avoidance. Um, and what, I mean, there's so many different ways we could talk about that, but, and, and again, I can't recommend this book enough, subtitle, Avoidance is Not Purity. But I think that's something that's so good, which is, you know, there's so many calls in the Bible to say, keep yourself from sexual immorality. There's, there's these are beautiful um, commands that God has given and calling us to something that is beautiful and really good for us. But I think that what has happened is um, with men in the driver's seat of this, I think men have taken the desire for purity and made the impure thing not their hearts, but the women. And I think that what happens then is you say the way to remain pure is to avoid women. And the way to cultivate purity is to separate ourselves. And so um, from the front, again, in, in a talk once, I heard a man say, and he was single. He said, I don't really see the point in female friendship until I'm looking for a wife. And um, as, I mean, sitting in the audience, I was like, well, I don't want to be your friend anyway. <laughs> um, check. Um, good luck on the wife part. Um, but I, um, but hearing that, I was like, wow, I, I feel like what that's saying is the only use that you have for me, women, is to marry you. And the only benefit you could add to my life is to, for me to marry you. And I think that that kind of buys in, actually, it, it kind of puts a little bit of a Christian veneer over it. <laughs> but I think what it's buying into is the belief that we hear everywhere else is that you only are a sexual being. And the only way I can really benefit from you is to marry you. And we think that that avoidance, instead of um, kind of leaning into it and fighting sin, is something that we see a lot. Yeah, and so I could imagine that some of you might have a sort of objection or, or question that could rise up and say, but with female and male relationships, there's a difference in how we relate than there is with the same sex, right? There's a difference there. And we're not saying that there's not. We're not saying in this that there's no difference. So things like attraction are real. Things like uh, temptation within that attraction, they're, they're real things. So we're not trying to be dismissive of that thing. We just want to highlight something that's often not realized when men, essentially, it's kind of the, now they call it the Mike Pence rule, but it was the Billy Graham rule, which is I'll only get together. This is obviously a married man talking about this rule with a woman in, in the context of another group, but I won't meet with her, not even in public, one-on-one, -on -one, because of the temptation that that could lead into or keeping up appearances. And I just want to note that there's, there's differing levels of conviction on this, but that principle alone, you can't just point to something like flee sexual immorality as proof in the pudding, so to speak, as, as evidence for like, that's why you should keep that rule. Duh, that's what that, when he says flee sexual immorality, it means never interact with a, another woman, ever. 
unless she's your wife. That doesn't equate. That's not a very good rendering of scripture. Well, and what it subtly says is the woman is sexual immorality. Does that make sense? It's sexual immorality is in your heart. (laughs) But to say I will not even sit with a woman is to almost imply that she is sexual immorality. Yeah, so interesting. So as men, we're often told that we, we like, so, you know, use pr- pornography as an example. That, that's a clear objectification of, of a woman. And we can all realize, like, objectifying a woman in that way is bad because a woman is made in the image of God, and she expresses <laughs> we need a woman to see the image of God, right? So when you objectify someone in that way, you're, you're totally mistreating and, and not loving that person, right? So... Interestingly enough, if and, and I had convictions similar to this. I hadn't worked it all the way through, but I was a sort of weaker brother in this area. Uh, my first ever project, one of Paul's assignments for me, he's our regional director, was like, you need to go talk to some girls. <laughs> like That was like one of the things he encouraged, encouraged me to do. And there's all sorts of reasons why I struggled with that. But one of the interesting things does is if I, if I simply avoid them so as to avoid sexual immorality, I'm still treating them as objects, as though that's all a woman is. Does that make sense? You can't equivocate those. That's, it's not the same thing. So that we need nuance with this kind of stuff. That's why the subtitle of this, Avoidance is Not Purity, is given. There's a cost. And, and when a guy has that kind of conviction, and he kind of gets hoity-toity about that, it's like, well, I just don't do that. That's fine, but you don't understand what that implies for the woman. There's, there's, a, there's an implication that that has toward her and how it could make her feel. And we need to think through layers of this. It's not as simple as you in a vacuum making your convictional decisions about what you're going to do or not do. Okay? So you kind of talked yeah, yeah, about yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so we're just going to, we're going to end this uh, we're going to try to land the plane so we can have some time for questions. C.S. Lewis has a really good quote that I think applies really well to this principle that we're trying to talk about. Why this is not the way God intended things to be, okay? So this is something that C.S. Lewis says, and he was, he was talking, he uses this analogy in the, his book, The Four Loves, okay? And he uses this analogy to talk about when a friend of his died. He had a group that would gather together, and this friend within that group died. And he got excited. He didn't get excited at the death of the friend. He, he, he thought of, maybe I will have more of my other friends now that this person has died and is no longer in the group. And this is his musings on that. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, that was his friend, I shall never again see Ronald, that was Tolkien, Ronald Tolkien's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious Nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each of us has of God. For every soul, not seeing him 
in her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, he's talking about Isaiah here, is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying holy, holy, holy to one another. So there's three crying holy, holy, holy to one another. Because I know it's Lewis. You're trying to track with me. You're like, what's he saying now? You can only take Lewis for so long. And then you need some interpretation. What he's saying is they're saying these things together because they draw out different facets of who God is. That's how immense and amazing God is. We need all diversity to bring him about, to, to cry out his name and to truly understand him. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. So Tim Keller sums this up this way. Lewis is saying that it took a community to know an individual. How much more would this be true of Jesus Christ? If it takes a community, if Anne brings out an element of me that only Anne can bring out, especially being a woman, how much am I missing out if I don't have a friendship with Anne? Or with any woman for that matter. There are ways which different races, gender, bring out who Jesus Christ is. And when we segregate and, 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 and divide just according to what we feel comfortable with, we're missing out on the fullness of who Jesus is. She's expressing God in a way that, that a man doesn't. And I miss out on that expression if I'm not in some way, shape, or form a friend with Anne. Does that make sense? So it comes back to God creating men and women in his image. And, and therefore, when we, we, we don't interact as friends in this way, there's a failure to understand all of who God is and the expression of who he is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and with that, <clears throat> leadership in friendships, in campus outreach, in the church, is merely men sitting around at a table. You're actually missing out on like we said earlier, the cultural mandate that God has given us as men and women to cultivate and subdue the earth. And so um, the more we've dialogued over these things and talked through these things we've seen, we can't really complement or complete each other. That's a phrase you're thrown out when there's gender talks, complementarianism. But you can't really complement each other. You can't really function well together if you avoid each other. And you can't really function well together if you're a threat to each other. And so... Um, we feel like we miss out not only on what God intended for us to display about him, to cultivate and subdue the earth, but, but we, rich, we miss out on the richness of community if we avoid each other. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll end there. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at newyearsconference.com.